Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down and talking with USA Field Hockey's Director of Performance Science, David Hamilton. And today David and I are going to sit and talk about programming for robustness. We're going to first start out talking about his approach uh, and how he handles both the men's and the women's side for USA Field Hockey. We then start touching upon what he's looking at, uh, you know, when he's prescribing training, things he's looking for, um, goals that he has for the athletes that he works with, and where these ideas come from, you know, looking at both how they play the game physically, as in positionally, biomechanically, and then actually like the biomotor outputs that they have with the GPS. He uh, then starts to talk about work capacity, how he defines it, and uh, how he builds it into his program. Uh, and that's some really neat stuff, tying in the whole idea of robustness and then work capacity working together to sort of, you know, bulletproof, if you may, uh, the athletes. He then uh, starts talking about prescribing exercises based on the field actions, you know, to, to, again, follow this whole idea of robustness. Again, looking more into, you know, their, their outputs, both physically with the GPS and then looking at the actual skills performed and how they perform them, you know, biomechanically and looking at the actual movements involved in the game. Really, really neat stuff, you know, and then talking about how he evaluates the athletes, both when they come into camp and then on a daily basis and builds the prescription around that. You know, and then a neat, a neat thing that he talks about is how he builds competition and where that fits, not just in his programming, but how specificity of training fits in with the competitive aspects of what they do. You know, and then the last thing we really start talking about is, is how you can always need to look at how hard these, uh, these athletes are working and how that actually affects them, meaning how that next event or that next practice or your next training session is going to be based on how hard they have been working in all the other realms. It really is an awesome talk. Dave is absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. All right, Dave, thanks for taking the time to be with us here today, man. My pleasure. Thanks for the offer to come on and talk. Oh, brilliant. Well, your time with USA Field Hockey, you know, your, your approach has been one that is, has been raved about from all the coaches that I've talked about, talked to about you. So let's, let's talk a little bit. Let's first just get an overview of your approach with the men and the women. Okay, so my role is as director of performance science, and within it, there's the, obviously the men and women's program. We're both international sides. The men are based in California, in Chula Vista, and the women are obviously based in Pennsylvania, Lancaster, which is where I'm based. And my role with the men is very much more of a consultancy resourcing position. So there's no way I can be in two places at once. Their current position in the world ranking is such that often the resource gets pushed more towards the women's program and they're currently ranked fifth in the world. Um, so, as I say, like my role with them is very much about helping them set up the right kind of infrastructure around assessment with the players, player management, um, best practice going forward when it comes to preparing for a tournament and their training loads or scheduling within a week, how to optimize that. And then with the women's program, it's very much the, <clears throat> the sweat equity component of actually hands on deck, getting the work done, both in the gym, stuff out on the field. And then there's a big performance angle of overseeing the medical program um, and all the other kind of service providers that come within the program. So nutrition, interns, a couple of PhDs I have on the go, 
um, the athletic trainer, yoga, all these things kind of get managed um, by my role. And then there's the performance element of constantly helping the coaches address and establish where is there opportunity for gains within our program and what can we put in place to ensure that we get this kind of systematic progression over this four-year quadrennial cycle that we have. So the men and the women's program are very different. That One is very much hands-off and one is very much hands-on. Um, the men are not full-time. They're part-time, so that obviously affects the way they are typically prescribed, their type of training. Um, whereas the women will train six days a week, twice a day, 48 weeks of the year. It's, it's, it's non-stop and it's all for this kind of two-week block of time that crops up in August every four years um, where they're required to kind of put down the next milestone with regards to their performance. And based on that, we'll hugely determine how the program looks for the next four years because the USOC and the funding is all going to be based on your outcome. So that brings about its own stresses. But fundamentally, this group of athletes are very unique. Their, their skill sets, their phys physicality qualities are a second to none. I mean, I've worked with other female, female sports. I worked with the GB team for the 2012. And the physical qualities of this group are, are kind of outstanding as, as, as a kind of cohort of athletes, um, certainly from a speed and anaerobic standpoint. So that's kind of how the program looks. Um, from a prescriptive standpoint, it's really about in field hockey players First of all, field hockey probably gets looked over with regards to the fanciness of the sport, with regards to a popularity standpoint, but it is the fastest, high-intensity field or court-based sport there is, more so than rugby, more so than soccer, more so than lacrosse. And this is all based on GPS data that's out there with the work rates these athletes put down. Um, and that's brought about by the, the rolling substitution nature of this sport. We roll our subs. We're trying to facilitate this high-intensity uh, work with on the pitch and then when it comes to the physical prep of athletes we've got the asymmetrical nature of the sport we have to contend with these deep flexion positions that put a lot of load on kind of upper hamstrings and tendinopathy type issues um, and we're really working initially on developing a work capacity we need to develop real kind of specific strength in musculature and tissue tolerance so they can constantly repeat these low to ground actions that they're required to do in the game and they could do anything from five to six hundred different changes of direction um, up to 600 meters of deceleration in the game and six to seven accelerations like it's it's a really kind of intense game that puts a lot of mechanical load on these players um, and a lot of kind of wear and tear through tendons because of the type of actions that they're doing the, the rotations inflection etc um, so we really try and put a program together that addresses a big prevention standpoint with regards to what they're going to go through, a big work capacity component of being able to the tissue to tolerate the type of work they're going to need to do. And then as we get into the program a little bit, there becomes this big need to repeat high-intensity actions, and that's kind of where our work goes towards. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of an outline of, of sort of the demands of the sport and certainly where I come from from my position. Um, I'm happy to talk more in detail if you have any particular questions, but hopefully that gives you an overview about what's needed. I think that let's, before we move on, let's start with the programming aspect. So when you look at work capacity, I guess my first question would be how do you define that and then what are you doing for that? So when we're looking 
the work capacity component is done it's not subjective. So what we know is when we play tournament hockey, that's what we've got to prepare ourselves for. We're not preparing ourselves to play field hockey. We're preparing ourselves to play field hockey on consecutive days for 12 or 14 days. You may play seven games. That's back-to-backs. That's day on, day off. And that what we try or the program is geared around is we want to make athletes be able to do the same work in the first 10 minutes of game one as they can in the last 10 minutes of game seven. That's the ultimate goal. So there's a big component around the performance. How do we recover, et cetera. Um, But with regards to the program prescription, the work capacity is therefore based on we know these athletes need to be able to sustain a a certain amount of volume. And some of that information comes from GPS. Some of it is just simply around frequency of training. If we train with consistency and frequency, inevitably we will develop a work capacity with our athlete. So that's where we kind of have our schedule to kind of replicate the demands of a tournament. So Monday is double, double session, Tuesday is a double session, Wednesday is off feet. That's like a tournament. Wet, Thursday we're back on for a double, Friday is a single, Saturday is a single, Sunday we're off feet. And they kind of repli- replicate the demands of a tournament and that just gets repeated for a block of time. So we typically do three weeks of centralized training where they have hockey and gym and all their physical stuff obviously within that week for three weeks. And that progressively increases in load. That load might be more of a conditioning standpoint week to week. Um, it will be the type of games we play out on the pitch, and it will be load and intensity within the gym. That's just a straight linear progression from week one to week three. Then week four, we, we have what we call a regen week, which is basically an opportunity to unload the athlete. We remove all hockey from the program. We have more off the activities. The gym stuff may still be there for that particular stimulus that we're after, um, but really, it's an opportunity to regenerate the athlete and then get them in for the next block of work. And we have a great kind of working relationship with the coaches and that we're, we're able to get a good say in the amount of work that is literally done on the pitch and the type of work that gets done depending on the training phase we're in. So I would say for us, the work capacity is really about a consistency and frequency of training. Um, Measures that we'll use with regards to the hockey-specific load is really based on tournament demand. So we'll look at what's the total distance that the players run in a, in a competition week. Are we replicating that appropriately in our training weeks? Are we replicating enough the high-intensity work that goes on in a competition week versus what goes on in a training week? Because we need to get these athletes specifically to be able to cope with those demands. Um, so we would typically have within a week, Monday is always a gym. Wednesday is a gym, Friday is a gym, and then we have two other conditioning components that will slot into the field-based work that they do. Um, does that help kind of add a little bit more clarity on no, that? No, 100%. That's, that's awesome because a lot, of, a lot of coaches in America would say work capacity is just like your ability to do work, and it would be a lot of like circuits or complexes or things of that nature. But to hear how you guys actually build it up in a specialized type idea, I mean, you're dealing with elite athletes. So it's different than what we're dealing with at a university level. And the, the whole centralized focus, I think, is, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, there's probably another layer on that with regards to the strength conditioning prescription. So we typically look at what, what's been defined now Uh, as robustness activities. So we want to make the athletes robust. So when we're talking about the gym-based stuff, how can we make an athlete robust? So we know 
like I said, you're going to get the upper hamstring tendinopathies. We know they're at risk of groin issues because of the type of split stance, lunge type activities they do repeatedly. Um, <clears throat> we know there's going to be glute deficiencies because they're quad dominant in the way they decelerate. Um, we know that they're typically going to have issues through dorsiflexion, plantarflexion because of the, the stiffness that develops through the, the gastrocnemius. We know that potentially there's going to be lower back issues if they're using their erectors rather than kind of good co-contraction through abdominal and, and, and you know, those, those back extensors. Um, we know there's going to be kyphosis. We know, you know, so we know all these things. So when we're talking about robustness, I need to now put exercises together um, that are going to help address those typical imbalances that are associated. And when I'm doing that, they are circuit-based. I actually want to work at low to moderate loads. I want to make sure they're working for 30 to 40 seconds. I want to make sure they're getting at least four minutes of conditioning in that particular muscle group, not high intensity, but low intensity. And I want to make sure that they're as specific as possible to the movements they do. So if I target, typically when they start off in the program, I will have one day a week, which is focused on these robustness activities purely there. So it might be, I basically focus on, I'm going to want a co-contraction around the knee, quad and hamstring. I want to work at 120 to 140 degrees and really try and limit the issue in hamstring activation that would occur when ACLs typically go in non-contact situations. I'm going to want to make sure that I'm working that upper hamstring. I want them flexed at the hip and being able to hold isometric or quasi-isometric type activities or perturbation activities within that hamstring. Um, they're going to replicate some of the loads they might associate playing the game. So I typically have a lot of single leg stability work, a lot of co-contraction work, that maybe hop and sticks, different activities like that. I get them in what I call stalo ability, which is a Vern Gambetta term, uh, which is based that deep flexion position, getting to hold those type of positions. Um, so they've got a block of time of that. And then I need to work on hip mobility. They've got to have range through the hip in all kind of planes. So I'll use hurdles, mini hurdles, to make sure that I'm facilitating an environment where I'm working them through range, and then I'm developing strength through that range. Now that becomes one session in the week. Once these athletes mature and get used to the work capacity of the week, I've got a lot more bigger fish to fry with regards to the physical development of this group. And so I break that robustness session down. And so on a Monday gym, I might just now be targeting hamstring, glute, co-contraction. And then on Wednesday, they're off feet, and I might be just working on some hurdle mobility work um, and some Bosch drills, which are really good for typical kind of sprint-type sprint, sprint type positions and getting that co-contraction around glute, hip flexor, etc. Um, and then on a Friday... I'll go into another activity and I might be working on adductors and calf strength mobility. And so what I've done is I start every session with this supplementary block of work and then it kicks into the stuff that I know is more of a performance gainer, you know, with regards to their needs as an athlete. That's fantastic. Now you mentioned monitoring prior and that you do do a bunch of just, uh, stuff with the GPS. How does that fit in and does that have any role in these decisions that you make, or is it all strictly orthopedic-based? Yeah, so the, the stuff with regards to the robustness, what we always do is always screen our athletes at the beginning of the year. I do, I'll get a functional movement screen done with the ATC and the PT and, and myself. Um, that's always done at the beginning of the year, no matter who the athlete is, whether they're new in or whether they've been in the year. We just want to get a standard of kind of where the group, how they're progressing once annually. Then we'll also do what I call the lower limb diagnostics. Now, that's where I get them in the gym. We do hop and sticks, measure the distance, use gym aware to do some kind of work out some discrepancies in single leg, maybe on a leg press power type activity, see where the differential is. Um, I'll do some single leg 
count movement jumps, squat jumps, and just again, I'm, I'm able to identify how well do they produce force in either leg, how well do they absorb force in that leg, how well do they move laterally, how well do they move in front, you know, the frontal plane. Um, that's all that diagnostic stuff. And so if there's obvious discrepancies, and typically we go to the normal 10% issue, then that massively gets addressed within the program. Um, but because the sport is asymmetrical in nature, they all tend to have the same issues, which makes it really nice when you're trying to prescribe stuff. The GPS is a standalone. So now we're talking about pitch-based activities. Um, and that stuff is used in a number of different ways. I would say there's two parts, three parts of the GPS. You have training, understanding training. You have preparing for a competition. So you want to be able to, that's when you really manage your athletes. And then you're going to have the in-competition data. And now this is where I'm trying to make performance decisions. Um, so for us, unlike I know some people are limited, we have GPS. We use it on the pitch. We're getting information on everything that we need to get information on. Um, we know the difference between players. Our game is rolling substitutions. So, Jay, if you're playing and I know that you get tired over, eventually I've got 140 data sets for you of playing on the pitch. And sometimes you've played nine minutes and some times you've played four minutes. Eventually, I'm able to work out what is the ideal amount of time for you where I get the optimal work rate. Mm -hmm. And what we're able to then do is once we have that information, we're able to now be very accurate with the way we're going to do our substitution strategy. I'm going to ensure that when you're on the pitch, we're getting the best work capacity for our team and we're optimizing our potential. Um, so that's the kind of purpose of the GPS in a competition standpoint. In a, training, in a training standpoint, it's really just a case of collect the data and see how things transpire. Um, you want to start understanding, I would always work backwards. So I know that the tournament is the end goal. This seven-day window of whatever work they accumulate, I need to be able to replicate that and more in order to prepare these athletes. That's a simple kind of training adaptation philosophy with where I need to get to, the overload component. What am I trying to do? How can I overload that? And I work it back. So what we'll do is the third week of centralized really needs to replicate a tournament and more and so we'll use the loads that we typically see in a in a competition and we'll try and somehow manipulate the training week so that we're ticking off those boxes we're ticking off the physical component we need to tick off now the week prior to that we're not going to want to go as hard no one can do three weeks of of, of a tournament scenario so like normal linear undulating whatever you want to use mm -hmm. there needs to be a control in the way that volume is is being done and so, as I say, there's daily conversations with the coaches. And I know a lot of people talk about having conversations with the coaches and trying to influence. I'm very fortunate, and the head coach here is very receptive because I've worked with him for seven, eight years now to the information that is offered. So when I'm saying Tuesday morning, can't do any small-sided games, can't go bigger than three-quarter pits, we don't want them going flat out, it doesn't happen. Then he comes in and we're talking about the afternoon session. Yeah, we can do this. Let's go full pitch. We've got the numbers. These are the work-to-rest ratios we should look at because we want to get an aerobic hit. Um, let's overload the players. Let's reduce the number. You know, we can, we can mess around with it to ensure we get the right training each week. That's awesome. So now you've got both of those components put together. We've got the orthopedic standards that are set through the initial foundational screenings and evaluations. And now you've got the biomotor outputs of the game based on the GPS units that you use. Now bringing it back to training, an aspect that a lot of people always want to talk about and sometimes uh, 
maybe worried about to a, a bit of the extreme is making things competitive. Now, mm -hmm. when you're dealing with athletes that, like you said, are really top-notch when it comes to just general athletic ability, how is this something that you ensure is there on a day-to-day -day basis, and how do you create it? And if you also have a role in that with the men, how do you do that that maybe differently, or is it always the same when you would handle it with the men's team versus the women's team? I think I think your last point is a great point that needs a discussion point. You know, the women versus man type scenario and how do you develop that competition? I think that's a great discussion point. Um, but typically what my kind of thoughts are is I like to use the idea of people ex creating a situation where they can self-discover. So if you're trying to do speed-based activities, I'm not a big believer in over-teaching the chopping mo movement or... How do they cut left to right? Like what I want to do is I want to put a challenge in front of you. I want to use you versus someone else. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to start looking at people around you, picking up the best methods. How can I be efficient in what I'm about to do? And how can I be the first to get over the line or, or complete this task? And I find that creating those environments where it's all, whenever there's speed, it's never, it's never you running by yourself. And this is nothing that, you know, other people do this. You ensure that it's four or five people going at the task. You know, that's the competitive edge because within, when you're at this level, nobody wants to be the last over the line. You know, you've got this natural drive. And I think the only way to develop a kind of speed is to really tap into that neural system, really kind of push yourself to do more. And if doing more means that you fall over or you look, at least you've tried to stress that system. And through having competition with others, I believe you, you're able to do that more than me just cognitively hoping that I'm going to run fast. You know, I need the external stimulus of the situation. So I'll typically do drills where I'm trying to complicate skills in a way that they just have to learn to deal with a different stimulus. So it may be things like um, at the minute we're doing speed and we're really working on tackle back, which is running back with a stick low because I want to try and get the ball, but I'll, I need to run at speed. So I'm talking about now running with my left hand across my body and I'm trying to get my legs to be as fast as they can. Well, that, that's difficult. That's a skill. So it's no good me doing speed work without a stick in the hand because that just will never transfer because believe it or not, that stick's going to get in the way all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to be specific at the right time within your season to target these things. So rather than using a stick, um, <clears throat> at the minute we're using dodgeballs. So they will run. I'll get them to run with a dodgeball, both hands overhead. Don't let the ball rotate in your hands as you're running. Well, that's adding a task. That's some kind of stress. Um, once you reach this curve, the dodgeball's got to go below your knee height. Well, they're now trying to run with it below the knee as fat as they can. Um, and these type of things. So then by adding in the different turns and adding the different tasks of where this ball has to be positioned on their body, um, what we're doing is we're creating this speed component, but it's in a way that, that's really adding the diversity to the skill. And it's, I, I believe more of that stuff kind of transfers. And a lot of this is based on the Franz Bosch approach of kind of differential learning and, and um and that type of work. So that's kind of how I do it. In the gym, I'll do stuff. Where if we're doing cleans or any kind of explosive type activity, I always get the gym awares onto the units. They're always writing on the velocity or the power score onto the boards. They know what each other are getting. And that's enough to kind of create that augmented feedback and generate intent. I'll do stuff where if we're doing um, some kind of clean activity or explosive activity where I line them all up not on a signal or on a word, they've got to perform the task as fast as they can. Well, without knowing it, now I'm trying to move it even faster. 
Um, and it's all about, you know, so it's these, like I say, this is nothing new, but I'd much rather go that route with these particular groups of athletes because that's what they're brought up on. There's a reason they're elite. They probably have some kind of hormonal and physiological advantage over other people. They're certainly driven that way. Um, and so it's just trying to find the right tweak for them to be, to be competitive. And so a lot of it is really just around their environment, making it a challenge for them outside of the norm, challenge them to do stuff quicker, um, challenge them to self-discover ways of, of completing tasks. And it's really just down to you as a coach to kind of think how can you be as, as random as possible but not get too far away from the final outcome. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. I like the whole idea with the balls and the, the different manipulations to that. That's, that's great. And then also one thing that I think a lot of people do overlook is the, the impact that an implement has, whether it be a hockey stick or a lacrosse stick or even a soccer ball at your feet. Like A lot of people want to spend all these times working on all these neat you know, track drills, which are great, and they yeah. work and they help, but at the end of the day, you're always going to have your left hand on the top of your hockey stick. That's right. You know, if you're yeah. a right-handed shot on the ice, you're always going to have your left hand. If you're a left-hand shot on the yeah. ice, it'll always be the other. You shoot a, you know, a lacrosse player, they usually are ambidextrous, but you're always going to have your one hand, your dominant hand typically, in the middle of that stick when you're running. Um, so the whole idea of that yeah. manipulation, that's that's pretty brilliant i I think that's an awesome idea um now piggybacking back a little bit so how would any of this competition differ in california versus in lancaster um i'd love to kind of tell you a a tale about this but my work with the men is probably is not hands-on enough for me to to offer much other than kind of my experience with other kind of men's teams that i've worked with um there is definitely a difference in the female Athletes, the male athlete. Uh, male athletes are very much about them. I don't, you know, I don't care too much about others. This is about me being successful. Now, in teams, it's it, you kind of get a different dynamic. But ultimately, even in a team, I'm going against someone else to get this position on the field. In women, it's very much about the group. They want to not necessarily conform, but they don't want to be the outsider. They don't want to do something that stands them out from other people because of what that potentially creates. So they naturally. Um, creating this this kind of dominant feature within the group is difficult. They're competitive, but do I want to dominate other people? No, I'm happy to win, but I don't want to win by a lot because then I'm, you know. So you're trying to create an environment where that probably doesn't happen so much. But at the same time, you do need to develop that because when you're one on one, let's play. We're playing small sided games. You know, it's in house, so it's um, we're playing against each other. They have to have a dominant ability to want to take a shot in the D, even if a teammate is in front of them. They need to have that dominant skill because that's, again, when we're talking about transfer to reality, if you don't pull that trigger every session, it's never going to transfer effectively to performance. And so we do a lot of kind of, this is where we work more on psychology. We're doing a hormonal study at the minute, looking at um, like how they perceive themselves within the group, how they perceive their competitive edge, their dominance. We're looking at T, T and C response. We're giving them a performance task after. And we're really trying to look into this to see if there's any way that we can better manipulate that particular skill set or natural kind of 
um, response, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, it's definitely difficult between men. It's much easier to get a guy and another guy on a line and get them to do something competitive because they just want to win. Their T levels are higher. They, they, have, they naturally have more dominant kind of traits. Whereas women can be competitive but sometimes lack the dominant feature, I think. Mm -hmm. That's pretty neat. And it's, uh, it's something that I think a lot of people know but aren't quite willing to completely admit in more so the first one than the second one you know it everybody likes to say that oh you know our guys work hard and they're team players and this and that but I I think that you hit the nail right on the head and that the men are very much you know male athletes definitely are more about me and the the women are definitely more about we uh, yeah and I I can see that and and that being a challenge because right now my primary women's sport is a is an individual sport oddly enough swimming and diving um and you you still see that the the greater conformity and wanting to be together but still wanting to improve your best because improving your best improves the team's best yeah um as opposed to where i could see with the guys where it's you know How'd you swim? Well, we didn't win, but I set four best times. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, well, I set four best times, but we didn't win. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting to hear that even at the higher level because, you know, the, the we thing is something that a, a coach, that a, a female coach that works with a men's team, Andrea Hootie, uh, she's the head strength coach at Kansas. She works with men's and women's basketball there. And she's brought that up in presentations multiple times, is the getting them to compete for each other, not against each other, to yeah. be a, a primary focus. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. Yeah, we see it everywhere, right? Like you're, you're going to a gym and there's always the, the record boards on the wall. Like the guys love that. Who doesn't, right? We'd love that to go in and compete with someone and get a name on a board. You do that with a women's team, you're just going to cause chaos. Mm -hmm. Like they might conform because it's your idea, but they'd... I can tell you, they probably don't enjoy it. I made the mistake early on with GPS data of kind of putting down who ran the furthest, you know, what were the volume. I thought I was doing them a favor. They're going to, I'm informing them with how much, not this team, another team. And soon, within like 12 hours, can you take that down? I'm like, what, what's the matter with it? Well, we, you know, she played more minutes than me. You know, it, it just causes something else that is just not worth for the greater good of their scenario. They yeah. might want to know that they're best, but... You can tell me I'm the best, but don't tell everyone. It's like that, you know? Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I, I can be the queen bee, but I don't need everyone to know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, and the fact that they asked to take that down, that's, now, was the person that was at the top of the list, she's the one that asked it to be taken down? Uh, no. Oh, it was someone else? Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, because that would but, have been... I mean, been... It, it could quite easily have been that person. I, that's just one example. No, right. Uh, it's and, and I'm doing this for very much kind of broad brush strokes here like because not not all of them are like this you definitely get standouts but i would say as a whole what we've kind of surmised with regards to the difference is probably the me versus we is is the best analogy yeah no that's that's absolutely <coughs> awesome and i'll tell you dave this has been an awesome talk hey no problem one thing I, I would just add is like just trying to tie the two pieces together of the amount of work they do in the gym and the amount of stuff they do on the pitch and one bit we didn't talk about, but I think it's probably important, is just there are other pieces in place. The two questions that I ask always in my kind of management program is how hard are they working 
and then what's the impact on that work to their ability to perform that day. So the GPS tells me the external load they're doing on the pitch, the information I have regarding their gym load tells me how much they're doing in the gym. I also get the athletes to rate their RPE, you know, as everyone does mm -hmm. these days. So I know they've done a lot of work, but perceptually how hard was it for them? And then I need to have another indicator of what's the impact of their ability to perform. So I do need to look at some kind of neuromuscular fatigue, some kind of cognitive somatic markers of wellness that they might fill out as well. Because if they do all that load, as that changes Monday to Friday and week one to week four and January to December, how are all these markers of physical performance changing over that time? And so for me, I use a drop jump. You could use a count movement jump, although it's validity is questionable because it's an outcome measure and you really need something that looks at both a stretch shortening cycle type activity. So you want something that's got a time and a, a force and a time component to it. But um, yeah, if you're looking at kind of neuromuscular response and you've got the athlete's perception of how well they're recovering, well now I'm able to understand load versus position. And over time you can track those trends. So that's something we do as well with the drop jump and rest wise. Um, it's really important to tie the two together. Otherwise, I'm just blindly looking at a lot of data and not knowing how they're responding to it. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And it's, again, another awesome example. I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today, man. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch real soon. Hey, look, it's, it's been fun. Thank you Thanks. very much. Thanks a lot. And a huge thank you to today's guest, Director of Performance Science with USA Field Hockey, David Hamilton. I mean, just gems all over the place. Dave's holding nothing back, leaving it all out there. I mean, giving us what he's doing, you know, and the just the bravery aspect of that I think is awesome and the, the unselfishness to share basically exactly what he does and how he does it with all of us um, is really appreciated. And I, I thought the talk was super. I really do. I really hope you guys took something from it. I know I took a ton. I mean, we're, we're breaking down some things and looking at a couple things differently just based on the 30 minutes we got to spend with Dave the other day. And as always, guys, if you enjoyed it, please share it in the social media outlet of your choice. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts, leave them below, whether it be on Facebook, tweet them at us, leave it below on YouTube or on the, on the actual page with the podcast. Uh, Dave is someone that you're going to be hearing more from here at Central Virginia Sport Performance in the near future. So if you have questions or anything, please fire away and we'll get them back as soon as we can. And as always, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And thank you for being a part of everything that we do here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We'll be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.